This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. While breakthroughs in the ability to diagnose newborns with genetic disease continues to expand in scope and fall in cost, the extent of newborn screening varies state by state. Nevertheless, the improving affordability of newborn screening is expanding access to these tests for parents seeking them. We spoke to Eric Schott, CEO of Semaphore Genomics, about the changing landscape for newborn screening, the company's Natalis test, and how far off we are from routine screening of newborns with comprehensive genetic sequencing. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks uh, Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about semaphore genomics, newborn screening, and the company's new Natalis test that screens for nearly 200 diseases. Perhaps we can begin with the landscape for newborn screening. What tests are routinely done and who decides what tests are required? Today for newborn screening, the responsibility for that largely resides with the state, the Department of Health organizations that are run by state governments. Uh, in New York, for example, the New York Department of Health handles that testing. Uh, when, a, when a child is born, there's a heel stick, a spot of blood is put onto a, a piece of uh, paper, <laughs> like an index card. And that's sent up to the you know, Department of Health, and then they run a number of of uh, tests on there to you know assess whether there's anything um, catastrophically wrong uh, with the child that could be addressed um, as early as possible. In which case, the you know there's often good outcomes uh, in those cases, and the disorders that are targeted are you know are, are ones that are both very severe, and there's treatments available if, um, if they're identified that can enable child to live, uh, live a healthy life or at least um, keep, keep control over, over the condition. How much of a gap is there between the newborn testing that's done and our ability to actually screen for genetic diseases? So there, you know, the, the test-mandated panels uh, range in number from, you know, I think the low end is probably around uh, the the low 20s. Uh, there's a recommended uniform screening panel uh, from the from federal government on 34 uh, disorders. Um, a lot of states have more than those 34. I believe New York has on the order of 50, 57, 58. Um, but that's a pretty small fraction. 
of the many hundreds. You know, there are literally thousands of uh, disorders that would be of the same um, uh, type as the ones that are tested for in that they're genetically caused. Uh, they lead to very significant uh, catastrophic uh, um, disease. And uh, in a lot of cases, it's not uh, treatable, but in a, in a lot of cases, it is. And that was one of the motivations for Natalis that's tasked to screen for 193 disorders um, where every single one of those has uh, either uh, treatment or a sort of intervention path that, if applied you know, early enough, can have uh, significant improved outcomes for, for patients. There seems to be a position among states, particularly, not to test for diseases for which treatments aren't available. Is there a case to be made for why tests should be done for known diseases even when treatments aren't available? I think definitely, you know, having it's, you know, the odyssey that patients go on when they have uh, either a child or they themselves have something that's catastrophically wrong and they're attempting to get a diagnosis, you know, for the type of disorders we test for in Natalis, uh, it's generally a seven-year journey uh, talking to between seven and ten different physicians trying to get to an accurate diagnosis of, of what's wrong. And I think even if it's not um, treatable, you know, having a definitive diagnosis on, on what's happening to end, you know, end the, this odyssey of trying to figure out what's wrong, I think, you know, gives uh, some sense of closure. Science, uh, as you know, moves at a, a really incredible speed at this point, and who's, who's to know, you know, whether something that's not treatable uh, today or not as part of standard care, standard of care, whether there's not a clinical trial ongoing or something on the cusp that a patient could benefit from. So I think having, you know, that information, uh, I think even in cases where it's not treatable is uh, something that is deserved of serious consideration. Semaphore is a spin-out from Mount Sinai. How, how did the company come about and what's it trying to do? So Semaphore is a result of, you know, work we've carried out over the last five to six years at Mount Sinai, uh, helping kind of transform uh, Mount Sinai into a cutting-edge uh, genomics powerhouse where we're leveraging all this advanced technology, the next-generation sequencing to peer more deeply into patients and better understand disease and disease risk and treatment response and and all of that you know aims towards a diagnosis as well. Uh, Complementing though that testing side has been an information science side. How do we, as we generate more information from these technologies like next generation sequencing, it generates just mountains of data. How you manage that information, how you compute on it, how you integrate it with medical record information. That's a big data sciences problem. So we kind of simultaneously solve this uh, testing application of modern technology and, and data sciences and have now transitioned that out of Mount Sinai really to scale it uh, kind of bigger, you know, better, faster as we um, want to apply the kinds of testing we were doing at Mount Sinai across the country and even internationally and also to kind of grow faster on the data sciences side to uh, both generate larger scale data on more individuals and build out larger teams that um, can mine that information for discovery and and then feed that back into the diagnostic interpretations. And we felt like, um, you know, as part of Mount Sinai, that we would be more flexible, nimble, 
able to move faster, you know, sitting uh, as a as a for-profit company uh, than sitting within a big academic medical center. It's interesting. You, you, you say that because you don't bill yourself as a technology company or genomics company or diagnostics company, but you, you call yourselves a health information company. Right. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, like how, you know, all of medicine in the future, or not, maybe that's too sweeping, much of medicine in the future is really going to be driven by, you know, the information around individuals. So it's, you know, who can best master, you know, the information that exists in the digital universe of information and place that in the context of an individual patient to provide the most accurate interpretation of what's happening in that individual's life. So think of it as a health course trajectory. You want to be able to map out a trajectory just like a GPS would and be able to understand what path is a given patient on. Is it a good path? Is it a bad path? If it's a bad path, how do you bounce them off that path onto a better path? What's the right kind of intervention, whether it's a it's a drug, a small molecule drug, or a behavioral intervention, or a diet and exercise, whatever the intervention is, like all of that's going to be driven by information. And our thought was, you know, you have to have the right scale of information if you want to derive the most meaningful insights to have these, you know, the biggest impact on on clinical outcomes. And again, that was part of the motivation for Semaphore was we needed to run much bigger you know, even though Mount Sinai is a big system, it's not big enough, doesn't have a big enough patient population to to have the power of the machine learning methods derive the most meaningful insights. So we needed to grow that uh, even bigger. So the whole game of Semaphore is to, you know, we're leveraging testing and our ability to interact in clinical workflows as a growth hack engine to build, you know, this big information superstore with, you know, the consenting of patients and their data to get to numbers that we need to derive the most meaningful insights. And that is going to be those meaningful insights derived from artificial intelligence, you know, machine learning methods that get then get incorporated back into the diagnostic interpretations of patients. Again, think individualized health course trajectories, and that will be what drives medical decision-making, that a physician will be using that kind of platform to make decisions on diagnosis and treatment. Your analyst test screens for 193 genetic diseases. How does it compare to other tests on the market? And I take it you said before that you determine what tests to include based on whether there were treatments, available treatments or or interventions. Is it a, a scalable test? Would it be difficult to add more diagnostics to that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I would say the focus initially on 193 disorders in addition to drug safety, so in addition to the 193 disorders, we're also testing um, genes that are known to uh, metabolize or otherwise cause uh, variations in uh, response to the most commonly prescribed medications to the pediatric uh, space. So those are included as well, 34 uh, genes in addition to the, or 34, I'm sorry, drugs uh, comprising, I believe it's 12 uh, genes in addition to the 193 uh, disorders. So that combination, we, you know, I'm a big data guy. So I would love to just whole genome sequence everybody and and just apply the lens of these 193 disorders for this particular test. But cost is still a big uh, function. As fast as the cost of sequencing is dropping, it's still not cost effective to get this type of test in a widespread use by 
you know, carrying out the most comprehensive screen you could do. Uh, also, there's a, you know, having worked within a big health system now for the last five years, there's kind of this uh, a learning over over that course of how doctors engage that information. You know, physicians are not trained in genetics. They're not, uh, they don't have the capabilities to engage, you know, whole genome sequencing information and how to make decisions on the vast amount of information that comes from that. You know, they really want stuff that's clinically actionable that can impact their ability to treat a patient and the ability for a patient to benefit from that. So it was a pretty purposeful um, restriction as a first step towards these um, disorders or drug safety issues that were all actionable, like they're clear clinical guidelines, clear treatments, uh, clear things you do if you're if if you're carrying a variant in one of these genes, and uh, that that's more for uh, how to make uh, the transition to a genomic medicine more more seamless and engaging than than throwing all this information at a at a physician from the mountains of data that could be generated from whole exome sequencing. So we think we're the only product today on the market that's targeting uh, in that way. And you've got it exactly right. As the information, as the knowledge base grows, we can very seamlessly expand um, the both the number of genes we're sequencing as well as the filter we apply to that data to provide medically actionable guidance back to the physician or patient. And who's the customer? Do you go directly to consumers or do you sell through providers? Yeah, so again, Natalis is, is uh, you know, flexible that way. We have, uh, you know, the one of the workflows we've come out with is a, sort of a consumer, you know, physician-supervised channel. So these are, uh, you know, tests that can be initiated by the consumer. So you can go to the Semaphore website and click on products and go to the Natalis page, and you as a consumer can then order that uh, test. And what happens when you order the test is then our network of, of physician reviews the information you provide around that test. They assess whether you're, um, you know, really eligible or qualified to be able to get that test. If they have questions, you're called. You talk to the physician. They um, try to understand your situation better and, you know, whether this is the right test for you or whether you should have a different test. So it's all done under the guise of, uh, you know, clinical care, even though the consumer is initiating um, that test when they go through the website. But we also, you know, um, sell this direct to physician practices, so think pediatricians who can uh, have this test ordered, make it available to patients uh, in their practice. So think of you know, cord blood, the cord blood business is kind of, uh, would kind of be an analog to something that patients are exposed to during the final stages of their pregnancy. Um, they're made aware from their physician of, you know, there's this cord blood service where you can bank the blood of your, your, uh, new baby. And, uh, so Natalis is, uh, marketed in that way as well. So it can be made available to patients through the course of their pregnancy or in the early life of their, of their child by the physician. We do both direct to consumer, which we like to refer to as physician supervised because it's not a, a pure, uh, consumer play. There are physicians and genetic counselors involved, or it can be ordered directly from the physician. What's the cost of the test and is it wholly borne by the consumer? Yeah, today uh, the cost of the test, which is six hundred and forty-nine dollars, is is an out-of-pocket um, expense uh, by the by the consumer patient. It's 
you know, it's a clinical test, so several, you know, benefit programs and, um, you know, accounts where you can use money in a tax, tax-free way to pay for medical expenses can be used uh, to pay for this. But our aim really is to make this standard of care. Like, we think all babies should be given this kind of more comprehensive test to complement supplemental newborn screening. In fact, it shouldn't ultimately be supplemental. It should be part of the standard of newborn screening. And the studies we're carrying out in the Mount Sinai Health System and other systems will help us build the evidence uh, that we need for payers and government agencies to, you know, be convinced that this type of testing, you know, is better for the patient, earlier diagnosis, earlier treatment, better outcomes, lower healthcare burden because you're diagnosed more quickly and accurately and you're treated more appropriately and so on. So we hope ultimately that this will be, again, routine uh, test that's applied to every newborn in the in the country. What's the process for the test? Who collects the sample and, and what's the path from sample to diagnosis? Yeah, so it's very uh, simple. If you know, if you order the test uh, directly online, your uh, again, you go through a process to uh, for us to collect medically relevant information around you that gets reviewed by a physician. If you are approved to get the test, you're sent a DNA collection kit, which is a very simple uh, cheek swab. So both. Uh, mom and reproductive health partner uh, take a collection of their DNA, which helps uh, inform on findings in the, in, the, in the baby. And then you swap the baby's cheek as well. Again, very simple um, uh, process, not, not complicated and not uh, at all traumatic for the baby. And those get uh, then mailed, uh, you know, just dropped into the mail. They come to our lab. We do the sequencing. Uh, apply the informatics, the interpretation, generate the clinical report. The clinical report is reviewed by a physician and then issued, you know, back to the patient. And a genetic counseling session is available as well to help step the patient through what the, you know, what the results mean. So it's kind of a everything that you can do from the comfort of your own home. What's the business model? Are you a CLIA lab? Is there something you do with the information other than provide a diagnosis that can create value? Do you provide other services to patients who test positive? So Natalis is just one of several testing products that we have. So we'd like to, again, if you think of us as information company, what do we want to do? We want to manage uh, the health journeys of individual patients. So we're the ones who are providing testing. So think of a pregnant mom. Uh, we do expanded carrier screening, which is testing your risk of passing on bad um, mutations to child, kind of assessing your risk of that, and that's typically done before you're pregnant or when you're newly pregnant. Um, we also carry out non-invasive prenatal testing, which is done when you're pregnant and looks at circulating fetal cells to see if there's anything catastrophically wrong um, with the fetus. And then when the baby's born, we have Natalis for the newborn screening. So we're sort of tracking mom along her journey, and uh, during that process, appropriately consenting. So first of all, all those tests we're giving, expanded carrier screening, NIPT testing, are sort of standard of care. Like all women are offered that kind of testing as a part of their uh, pregnancy. In most cases, they're reimbursed uh, by insurance. So we're providing, you know, all the, you know, the kind of the testing and clinical interpretation for, for actions that are taking based on that. 
but also engaging the patient in that journey by consenting them in ways that give them access to all the information that's being generated on them in the health system. Our position is that's the patient's data, and we should uh, help the patient manage their information, uh, benefit from it, and if they so choose, they can consent us to uh, use that information for research to enhance our ability to understand disease, uh, better diagnose disease, and better, better treat disease. So there's definitely a data mining data sciences component that feeds back into both improved diagnostics as well as drug discovery. How far off are we from routinely screening newborns with comprehensive genetic sequencing? And and do you see that as where we're eventually moving? Yeah, so we're, you know, today, it's, again, we're one of the first uh, products that's intended specifically to screen well, what appears to be well, um, babies. So this is not a test. If, if you're a baby and there's something um, very apparently, you know, clinically manifested, something very wrong. So it's not uh, to be used in that kind of diagnostic case where something uh, like whole exome sequencing or very targeted tests based on uh, hypotheses that a physician may, may generate based on the sim- symptoms. This is the first product really for well babies. So again, think of like newborn screening. It's just run on every, you want to run on every baby to help inform if something that's even not clinically manifested yet, uh, you can identify it early and, pre- and prevent it from becoming clinically manifested. So that's, uh, you know, that's not having the first product on the market um, today that way that's uh, genomic is, I wouldn't say it's disappointing, but it's surprising, you know, that there aren't, that this isn't more routine, that these diseases that we know have clear genetic causes, that if you carry that mutation, you are at extremely high probability of getting the disease, and you should, you know, you should know about that. That's not something that's done uh, routinely today, but we hope that with this type of product, and again, just the momentum genomics has, that my guess is in five to ten years, this is routine. This is uh, genomic testing is being carried out on every newborn, at least in some states. Uh, as a routine course of of having a baby. Eric Schott, CEO of Semaphore Genomics. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.